For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet some Pasquayaki youth who are getting politically involved. Look back at Native American portrayals from film history. A profile of Tucson author Ethel Lee Miller and her writing circle friends. And Dimelo has a story about young love over a long distance. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On Monday, June 6th, an important election took place for members of the Pasquayaki tribe when all 11 seats on their governing tribal council were filled with individuals from a pool of 50 candidates. In a reflection of state and national elections, the decisions that guided voters at the polls often involved tribal politics as much as the issues. Next, Amanda Martinez introduces us to three young Yaki voters who each took their role in the process seriously and tempered their personal preferences with a wider view of their community. Okay, so Leo Simchanyavo and Chine Maria Lourdes Titeak. Greetings, my name is Maria Lourdes and I am from the Bosquiaki tribe. I'm the youngest in my family, I'm the fifth child. I am a first generation college student. I recently graduated from the U of A with a bachelor's in political science and American Indian studies. I originally grew up in South Tucson in Barrio Libre off of 35th Street and 9th Avenue. I am rather active in the Yaqui ceremonies and rather proud of my, not only my culture, but my involvement and, you know, my identity and living, you know, as a Yaqui person. As a member of the Pascua Yaqui Nation, Maria leans on her cultural identity and education to help her decide who to vote for in tribal elections. This year, all 11 incumbent members of the tribal council ran for re-election, along with 39 other candidates. But election turnout remains low. Well, one of my biggest um, passions currently is to get more people to go out to vote, because the more people, the more people vote, the more people are more involved in what's going to be set out for them for the next few years while this new council is in office. Although the number of registered voters has risen in each election since the year 2000, the percentage of those who do vote hovers around 20 percent. In 2012, it fell to 16 percent. I know for a fact that I've had a number of um, not only young people, but even middle-aged people and like different age groups who refuse to vote because they feel like nothing's going to change because they, they also feel like nothing's going to affect them, regardless of the persons that they would potentially vote for. For a candidate to get Maria's vote, they need to have a platform based on education and cultural preservation. The Pasquayaki Wellness Center off of Valencia Road buzzed with excitement the day of the election. Dozens of canopies lined the sidewalk outside of the polling place with the candidates, family members, and supporters making last-minute pitches to those coming in to vote. Even though youth votership is low, there are those still involved, including first-time voters. Hello there, I'm Loretto Maldonado. Uh, I'm 20 years old. It's my first time voting on the Pascua Yaqui Reyes. Uh, it's just fun to be here. So, yeah, I think it's important to vote. I mean, everywhere it's important to vote. But here, more so, uh, the decisions that are made up there will, will be affecting them directly 
where they live, whether it be in Guadalupe, New Pascua, uh, even in Mexico. And this is their opportunity to have something done or pick a representative they feel is for them. A major factor in wanting to vote for somebody and what helps me or makes me want to vote for somebody is their knowledge and their capability. Economics is a big part and has been a, a, a wide failure within our community. So to know that they have something in that really makes me want to vote for them. I also need to see that they need to have that concern for the people because if they know economics but they have no concern for the people, then it doesn't do any good because it's just money in their own pocket. But they need to have that, that knowledge and that compassion for the people. They can find that place in the middle where they meet and it benefits everybody. Hello, my name is Cesar Bonamea. I'm out here at the Bosque Acres Reservation for the tribal elections. I've been getting prepared to vote for uh, certain candidates based off of um, their character and like their traits that they've portrayed, like not during this election time, like year round. It's not based off of just this, what is it, a couple months that they're promoting themselves. You know, like I go based off of how they are as a person, how I know them, and it's a small community, so everyone knows each other, and that's just how I'm trying to kind of choose my candidates. I want somebody who's like not afraid to speak up for the community that's not just going to go along just for the paycheck. I want to see the candidates uh, speak up for community members, you know, the, the elders that can't speak up for themselves or employees that work throughout the tribe that have certain uh, issues in their workplace and that, you know, they really can't speak up for themselves. It's, it's really important for youth to come out and speak their mind. You know, get to know the candidates, get to get a good feeling for who who your future candidates are going to be, your future tribal council, because it's not the present, it's the future that really matters. You know, who you choose is going to create the future for us and, you know, like our little brothers and sisters. And like I said, we're a small community and we need like change here. I see the progression, but I still believe we could be higher than what we are right now. So anybody that's young, that's on reservations or out in the city, I really stress that if you're young and you're old enough to vote, to go out and vote and uh, make them changes and, and keep your community, you know, striving forward and have a bright future. Caesar's father ran for tribal council, but was not elected. I'm Amanda Martinez for Arizona Spotlight. Actors often take on roles that require them to portray characters with different backgrounds, ages, gender, or sexual orientation from their own. But there's also the age-old practice of whitewashing, using Anglo actors to portray persons of different ethnicity, often sacrificing authenticity and cultural sensitivity in the process. What happens when you combine the lack of opportunities for Native American actors with the frequent misrepresentation of their people as hostiles and primitives? Chris DeShield chose to take a closer look at one of Hollywood's biggest blind spots. The facts about the conquest of Native Americans continue to become more widely known, and the indigenous people of today still offer their testimony to the world, not only about the past, but about continued oppression right now. Recently, though, I've been thinking about the effects of the conquest on the minds and hearts of white Americans, as reflected in the culture, and especially in the movies. Native Americans have been depicted in film since the beginning. 
Among the earliest of Thomas Edison's kinetoscope films was an 1894 clip of Lakota Indians from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show reenacting the ghost dance. D.W. Griffith's The Battle of Elderbush Gulch from 1914 features the most enduring theme. A family is trapped in a house surrounded by marauding Indians until the cavalry comes to their rescue. The Indian was the threatening other, a being completely alien to our way of life. With a painted face and feathered headdress, a savage, as they called it, Fear justifies hatred, which justifies killing. The Indians were most often, as in this early example, a backdrop to the drama of the white frontier people trying to make a new life. The attack of the Indians was a scary and exciting spectacle for audiences. Of all the scenes in westerns featuring Indians, this was the most typical, an aggression resisted by heroic settlers or soldiers, climaxing with a great slaughter of Indian warriors. Taking into account the cumulative effect on viewers of hundreds of Westerns throughout the decades, the average person would think that Indians were constantly attacking the whites in force, and that only the most heroic resistance to this aggression made America as we know it possible. The real story of forced relocations, encroachments on, and massacres of Native people went untold. The first full-length feature made in Hollywood was Cecil B. DeMille's The Squaw Man, also from 1914, the title containing a garbled derogatory slang term. But the picture itself brings up another curious theme, a sense of guilt about what was done to Indians and a corresponding idealization of them. The native woman in the film, played by a Winnebago actress, saves her white man's life twice, bears his child, but still ends up on the losing side of the plot. Hundreds of nations, as we are used to calling them, inhabited this land, with widely different languages, customs, physical appearances, and religions. The colonizers put them all in one category as if they were the same, while perpetuating the original mistake of calling them Indians until it stuck. In the movies, they were almost exclusively turned into Plains Indians, usually the Sioux. Here in the Southwest, where many Westerns were made, Navajos were most often the ones used as actors and extras, no matter what tribe was being depicted. And, of course, in John Ford's westerns, we see the supposed Plains Indians living in Monument Valley. Furthermore, if there was a prominent Indian character, he or she would always be played by a white person. Everyone from Burt Lancaster to Rock Hudson and even Audrey Hepburn played Indians. Even when a production tried with good intentions, to be honest, there was always a certain condescension, a persistent idea that there is something shameful about being a native. Among the better examples of this more honest kind of film was John Ford's Cheyenne Autumn from 1964, dramatizing the criminal treatment of the Cheyenne. It seems almost like a personal atonement by the director for his part in the Hollywood Indian myth. Little Big Man from 1970 and Dances with Wolves from 1990 were evidence of some progress because the Indian characters in these films had personalities. They were granted a fuller humanity. Keep in mind, though, that the main characters in both these movies were white. And finally, there have been some films made by Indians in recent times, like Dance Me Outside and Smoke Signals, with a genuine native point of view. But there needs to be a lot more of them. I highly recommend Real Engine, real spelled R-E-E-L. The use of the word engine is, of course, satirical. It's a 2009 documentary by Cree director Neil Diamond that explores the depiction of Native Americans in movies. 
One of the persons interviewed is the late Santee Dakota poet and activist John Trudell, who at one point makes a profound statement. The myths are destructive, he says, not merely because they denigrate Native American identity, but more importantly because they deny the basic nature of people as, before anything else, simply human beings. By painting the other as an enemy to be feared and despised, thus justifying the theft of all they have, the myth fails to recognize them as human. And in the process, inevitably, we all end up losing awareness of our own humanity. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. You can join Chris DeShiel, our friends, and me online as we discuss our love of films from any time and everywhere in a new podcast series called Let's All Go to the Lobby. You can listen to episodes right now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. For some, retirement means a light schedule with plenty of free time to relax. For others, it represents the opportunity to finally devote significant time to a creative pursuit and the chance to make something that was once a hobby into a full-time labor of love. Here's Tony Paniagua to introduce us to a Tucsonan who is sharing her experience with other talented individuals in her community. While growing up in the 1950s and 60s in the state of New York, Ethel Lee Miller had a variety of interests and passions, including her family, a special place for summer getaways on Long Island, and the English language. Ethel Lee Miller was fascinated by words, and so was her twin sister Eileen, who was born five minutes before Ethel. When they should have been in bed sleeping, for example, the little girls would pay close attention to adults and their conversations. We always used to play word games, or we would hear a word and we'd laugh because it sounded funny. My grandmother used to say, she's such a flibberty gibbet, and so we would just go, flibberty gibbet, or gibbety flibbet, and just play with words that way. And as a twin, my mom said we even had our own language when we were younger, so maybe it just evolved from that. Lee Miller went on to become a teacher in New Jersey for 28 years. After that, she worked as a counselor, and all along, her childhood games became valuable tools. When I was teaching, kids loved to play with words, and it carried over even more when I worked with adults about the power of words, especially someone might say, well, I'm just a housewife. You know, those words can diminish, as well as other words that can strengthen people. So I talk, always talk about the power of words. Lee Miller and her husband moved to Tucson in 2009 when they retired, but she continues her world of words in her new home. Retirement is supposed to provide much more free time, but Lee Miller hasn't slowed down. She's the author of two books, and she is very engaged in the community. In addition to other interests, such as dancing and traveling, Lee Miller founded the Eastside Writing Room, where adults get together to hone their skills. Every week we meet for two hours uninterrupted, no cell phones, no getting up to do laundry, no, which is what happens when you're at home writing. And I, I credit that with getting a lot of my writing accomplished with, with both my books. Lee Miller also runs Writers Read, where authors read from their publications at Brood Coffee Lounge on Tucson's east side. And once a month, she attends and directs the Creative Writing Group at Atria Belcourt Gardens Retirement Community. And our purpose, it's kind of a dual purpose, to improve the craft of writing, and to absolutely support each other in our writing efforts. She encourages a variety of seniors with fascinating backgrounds and experiences to experiment with memoirs and other forms of writing. 
One of them takes over for the group the three weeks out of the month when Ethel Lee Miller isn't there. Amy Jean Knorr. And when were you born? I was born November 28, 1916. That's right. Amy Jean Knorr is 99 years young, and she's an eager participant in these lessons. She makes new friends and discoveries. It gives me pleasure. It challenges me. I try to think about words that will say exactly what I mean. I try to encourage other people to share their thoughts because it's important to them and it's also important to me. For author, writer, and public speaker Ethel Lee Miller, the different groups and busy schedules are part of her developing chapters in Arizona. Words, people, relationships, three of her favorite topics that bring joy and satisfaction. Just that connection, when you see somebody's face light up or they get excited about something, that is very powerful to me. It's a lot like the early years as a little girl with her close-knit family and her affinity for words. I think I found my form in speaking and in teaching. I, I realized when I was in college I was good with little kids and I could, I could move them and influence them. And that led me to teaching. And now I'm still doing it. <laughs> and even though she's retired, her agenda is packed for there are many more people to meet and stories to record. That personal connection, it's, I think we need more of that in life, people connecting to people. So that's what I'm doing. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Ethel Lee Miller will be part of a Summer Writers Read event happening next Wednesday, June 15th, at the Brood Coffee Lounge on Tucson's east side. There's a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next, a young couple separated by an almost 7,000-mile military deployment create a place in Tucson they can always come back to, no matter the distance. For Dimelo, Mariana Dale has the story, which comes from a postcard dropped off at the El Rio mailbox. All of a sudden, like, it was like nothing was the same anymore when he left. And it was just like the drive home was different. The sunset was different. It was just... Everything around me felt different. So I came up here because I thought maybe things would be better. They were just like a little bit better. (laughs) Not that much. (laughs) Summer Soto is 19, a business student, a lifetime Tucsonan, and she's in love. Her cell phone screen is a window into a U.S. Marine base in Okinawa, Japan. Hello, where are you? Hi. Lance Corporal Israel Corte is on the other side. He had to shave his poor hair. You making fun of my hair again? Yeah. 
It's 6 a.m. Tucson time, about 10 p.m. for him. Can you guys hear me? This is the new normal for the couple since Israel shipped out mid-May. Though they're both from Tucson, their entire relationship, officially about seven months, was built between hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles of distance. They tell people they met at a football game, but that's not the real story. And a warning, it gets real cheesy. We actually met on Facebook. And I was like, that's so lame that we met like that. I was like, it's so like cliche, but I was like, whatever. She added him first. And then five days before my birthday, he commented on my picture and he said, wow. I don't know, I just thought that you were really cute. The picture was a selfie. Summer has long dark hair that falls over one eye and her lips pressed together just barely in a half smile. Yeah, a lot of girls are just like, they're too shy or they're they try to like you know have this like pose where it's like you know um on this high pedestal and you were just you so yeah i was just like wow that was the word wow in response she left an equally ambiguous wow on one of his profile pictures which was also a selfie but it was serious. He didn't smile, and his eyes were covered with aviator sunglasses. And I thought, like, oh, like, he looks so grown up, and, like, I'm still in high school, and, like, he looks so mature. And like, They traded messages for months. Yeah, First, was she was aloof and wouldn't give him her phone number. When she did, really he never old. called. So then when he did call, I was like, everybody stop doing what you're doing and move out of the way. Israel thought he had a role, the I tough know, Marine, like, as he says it, a super emotionless dude. And Summer played hard to get. Because of the distance, he was in Florida at the time. The relationship was casual and fun. That changed when Summer bought Israel's plane ticket home to Tucson to visit, a month after they decided to date exclusively. Summer and Israel spent two full weeks together before he left for Okinawa, his new home, for at least the next year. Israel gave her a stack of colored envelopes before he deployed, it's his first overseas stint, and hers too. On the front, each one says, open when, followed by a when feeling. You're missing me, uh, when you're hungry or need some money, um, when you need some motivation, when you're angry or upset with you me. You can find a lot of these letter ideas uh, online. There's even a website dedicated to LDRs, that's long-distance relationships. Or if I don't feel beautiful. But there's one letter unique to Summer in Israel. It says you need to visit a very special or, place to open it. Uh, when I visit, this is the actual one of when I visit the end of Campbell, so this is one that I take with me. Months ago, at the end of another visit, Israel wanted to take Summer somewhere special before he left. He made her close her eyes, and they drove north on Campbell until it dead ends in front of a gated community. It's the head of a hiking trail, but people use the small parking lot for other reasons. Like, I guess most people can look at it as like a makeout point, but sometimes you just, you know, you slow down and you just look at everything. The lights and the stars and stuff like that. Tucson spreads out to the south. A mountain and the buildings of downtown poke up from the sea of tile roofs. After that first time, Summer started coming back to the spot without Israel, especially when he leaves. Now I kind of just go there to be by myself and to think about him. The last time he left, in mid-May, is when he headed for Japan. She waited at the airport until his plane raced down the runway and then drove straight to the Campbell spot.
it feels like, you know, he's right by my side, even though if I look, he's not there. But, you know, he brought me here, so. It's like a place I have with him. Summer didn't open Israel's special letter that visit. A few weeks later, the feeling of missing him overwhelmed her, and she drove back to Campbell to see what it said. The view is amazing, isn't it? And we danced in the dark under September stars, under the pouring rain. And I know that I can't ever tell you enough that all I need in the light in this life is your crazy love. Be careful when you're out there alone, okay? You matter so much to me. And I care about you like no other, although I it may be hard to smile right now, but just do it for me, okay? I love you so much. So I want to ask a question of both of you, which is like, how does it feel to be 19 and almost 21 respectively and feel like you found the person that you best fit with? To be this sure and this young, it's just like, you kind of just have to go with it, you know? And I say, if like, you think you found the one, like why look for anyone else? You found everything you want in one person already. To be this sure, this young is, uh, yeah, it's scary because I'm worried that I might have regrets, but at the same time, I don't, I can't picture a life without him. And so I'd rather, you know, do all the things that I want to do with him by my side. Thanks to Summer and Israel for sharing their story. For Dimelo, I'm Mariana Dale. We have to like hike Machu Picchu with like a kid and a husband. Like that's fine. Like I'm willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, um, hey, I'm, a, I'm probably gonna be the one hit, like hiking with the baby, but you know it's okay. Dimelo is a community-driven storytelling project. Add your voice. Go to dimelostories.org or drop a postcard in one of the special mailboxes around town. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Join us for an evening of unscripted storytelling. Next Thursday, June 16th, Dimelo is hosting an open mic story slam on the outdoor patio at the St. Charles Tavern. Come and tell a five-minute story on the theme of belonging. You can sign up at the event before the show starts at 7.30 p.m. It will be hosted by AZPM's Tony Paniagua. The St. Charles Tavern is at 1632 South 4th Avenue. The event is free for ages 21 and up only. Find out more at dmelostories.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.